as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. Hello and welcome to this week's Speak Up podcast. I'm Nikki Giron, Adult Aged Care Project Officer with Speech Pathology Australia, and today I'm speaking with Jennifer Davis. Jen is a speech pathologist who is also an advanced allied health practitioner. She works within the Integrated Specialist ENT Service at Logan Hospital, and in this extended scope role, she contributes both clinically and in a research capacity. Welcome, Jen. Hi, Nikki. Thank you. Nice to see you after so many years. I know. I know. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. It's made me reminisce about our university day, <laughs> which was some time ago. Some time ago. I should have said uh, oh. that I'm still kind of a university person because I have my Queensland Health role here in the Integrated ENT Service at Logan Hospital, and I also work at Australian Catholic University. So I'm, I'm still doing uni things. You're still at uni. <laughs> That's fantastic. I was remembering that we actually had a couple of lecturers who still used OHTs. Yes. Do you remember that? Turn the lights down, put the transparency on the projector. Yep. <laughs> not, not easy to stay awake during a two-hour lecture with the lights off. <laughs> not for me, anyway. <laughs> it's wonderful to talk to you after so long, and you have achieved so much since our university days. I'm really excited to hear about that and to hear about the program. So I'll try to stay focused. We can talk about the, we can reminisce more later. But for now, could you give us a rundown of how the program, the Integrated Specialist ENT Service, how it started out and, and what it looks like? Yeah, certainly. So this service started well before I was part of it. It started in 2013 and it was a model developed jointly by ENT, speech pathology, um, audiology were involved and still are and they have their own first point of contact clinic uh, here at the hospital and it was oh. developed as a model to address ultra long waits. So here at Logan Hospital we had some category 3 ENT patients waiting over 900 days for appointments. Wow. That's a long time. Really long time to get into ENT. So this model was developed by Associate Professor Bernard Whitfield, uh, the Director of ENT here at Logan Hospital, Professor Liz Ward, Marnie Seabrook and Maria Schwartz back in 2013. Oh. I'd imagine it would take a team like that to work together. Because nothing like it oh. existed. So they um, had to initially specify inclusion and exclusion criteria into the clinic. So which patients were going to be seen by speech pathology in this first point of contact kind of model. And they identified that it have to be adults. So patients over 18 years old, patients who had been triaged by ENT and categorized as a category two or category three patient. Uh, they had to be non-smokers and there were patients who didn't have large thyroid nodules. So they were the, the kind of patients uh -huh. who were seen 
as um, potentially able to be seen by speech pathology and they either had to be uh, referred by a GP for dysphagic issues um, or uh, dysphonia. Uh Mm -hmm. So those CAT2 and CAT3s, they're they're considered the lower risk referrals, yeah? So CAT1 patients are seen within a month, ideally, whereas CAT2s can be seen within three months, CAT3s within a year. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're the ones that were just sitting on that wait list. Sitting on that wait list and never getting to the top because more and more Cat 1s and Cat 2s were beating them uh, to the clinic spots that were available. Right. Yeah. So yeah. When, when the team was starting this project, they had to identify those patients that would potentially be able to be seen by speech pathology and then also look at credentialing uh-huh. because this is that, it, that um, extended scope of practice work. Uh, so uh, we needed credentialing um, for fees. So we'd complete the fees competency training package, uh, which included uh-huh. the technical training in flexible nasendoscopy. We needed training in video stroboscopy, uh, credentialing for the administration of cofenylcaine fort, which is that spray medication that we spray into people's noses prior to flexible nasendoscopy. It acts as a topical anaesthetic and a nasal decongestant, making it easier to pass the scope through the nose and more comfortable for the patient. That's if we're not doing a dysphagia assessment. And, um, and there also needed to be a credentialing package for the dysphagic stream of patients who would come through the clinic and a, a, a stream for the dysphonic patients who would come through the clinic as well, which included uh, uh-huh. a lot of um, speech pathology sitting with an ENT and watching what ENT do when they see a dysphagic or a dysphonic patient, speech pathology uh, going into theatre and watching some relevant operations um, completed by ENT. Wow. That must have been fascinating. Oh, it was fabulous. I really, really enjoyed the credentialing for this for this clinic. And to be supported by the ENTs like that and work so collaboratively with them. It's one of the joys of working here is that we are such an integrated service. So it's, it says an integrated uh, ENT service on the door into our clinic and, and it certainly is how it functions. So once that, um, that credentialing was completed and, and patients were identified, um, we had a pilot trial back in 2013 over six months and what it found was that 70% of patients seen within this first point of contact clinic by speech pathology and ENT were able to be managed and discharged uh, from the wait list. Right, so they saw the advanced speech pathologist with support from the ENT and then they were discharged. Discharged and some of them discharged with no follow-up required. Some of them needed some voice therapy, um, that kind of thing. But they were taken off the ENT wait list. And the 30%... Ah, mm, And that's amazing to have those real numbers. Yeah, it it was highly successful. And the remaining 30% required return to the ENT wait list for a variety of reasons. So some of them uh, had an escalated category. So some patients who, uh, based on their referral, had been categorised as a CAT2 or a CAT3, but when they were brought into the clinic, had something something more sinister identified and were escalated to a CAT1 and then uh, taken over by ENT. I can imagine that for those for those ones that were escalated, that early intervention for them, they could have sat on that wait list for however many days without the realisation that they actually needed more urgent attention from the ENT, right? That's exactly right, Nikki. And I think those patients are actually the really big winners from 
the establishment of this clinic is those Cat 1 patients who on paper look like a Cat 2 or a Cat 3 and were able to be seen really quickly by this service and and been brought to the attention of ENT and, and very appropriately then managed by ENT from there on. Some of the other patients within their appointment with the um, AHP speech pathologist had new issues that were identified. For example, if they were referred by the GP for dysphonia, but then in conversation with the speech pathologist, additionally reported significant sinus issues. So those patients needed to be returned to the ENT wait list for management by ENT for that secondary issue that came up during the appointment. And um, encouragingly, across that six-month pilot, there were no adverse effects or no adverse outcomes. So that pilot data was published um, by Marnie Seabrook um, and colleagues. And then in 2016, the clinic had been going for a few years and had really successfully managed the wait list here at Logan Hospital. Uh And at the Uh Queensland Health Awards for Excellence, the service won the overall Minister's Award for Outstanding Achievement and was a finalist within the Delivering Healthcare subsection. So it was a really, really Uh successful model that was introduced. That's amazing. And that wait list um, from the published research that I've looked at, the reduction in the, the wait times was considerable correct? Oh, absolutely enormous. And on our more recent review, uh, we've found that we're seeing patients often within a Cat 1 timeframe for our first point of contact patients. Wow. Um, that's incredible. And we might talk a little bit more about those those outcomes in a minute. But first, could you give me Give us more of an idea of what your, of perhaps a clinical case and, and what it looks like when somebody comes in to the service and sees the speech pathologist um, advanced position. Yeah, certainly. So we currently, we've evolved a little bit now, Nikki, and we have kind of two streams of patients who are coming in to see us. We have these traditional first point of contact clinic patients who are referred to their GP um, for troubles with their voice or trouble eating and drinking. And we've, our, our clinic has evolved and ENT identified a new subgroup of patients that um, were uh-huh. seen by ENT as appropriate for speech pathology to see in a first point of contact model, uh, who are patients uh-huh. coming to ENT or referred to ENT for what's called a vocal cord check prior to thyroid uh-huh. surgery. So general surgeons uh, and ENTs complete thyroid surgery. ENTs complete flexible nasendoscopy as part of their role routinely. General surgeons don't complete flexible nasendoscopy. So when general surgeons are doing thyroid surgery, they typically refer their patients to an ENT prior to surgery for a vocal cord check, which is to check the functioning um, of the vocal cords prior to theatre to see if either of the recurrent laryngeal nerves have been impacted by the thyroid condition or for some other reason, if there's an idiopathic um, cord palsy, uh, because they want to know uh, that both vocal folds are functioning completely prior to surgery. So ENT felt that it was appropriate for speech pathology to start seeing those patients. So we now also see those vocal cord check patients, and they're a really quick review. So a vocal cord check um, for me takes about 20 minutes 
to complete. So it's a really brief case history and um, I complete a variety of multidimensional voice outcome measures, so an auditory perceptual assessment using the Grabass, aerodynamic measures, so maximum phonation time, visuoperceptual assessment, which is during completion of a flexible nasendoscopy, and um, I include stroboscopy as part of that assessment, and also collect data from patients using self-reported outcome measures. In particular, I use the voice-related quality of life index, the, I'm sorry, the voice-related, yeah, VRQOL. And the, what else do I do, Nikki? I do the EAT10 and the reflux symptom index as well. Um, and then complete FNE, record that, and then show the images to ENT while presenting the case to them. So that's a really kind of quick appointment for those patients. And they're considered quite low-risk patients because majority of them don't, don't have any pre-existing swallow or voice issues. But we see them resurgically and then post-surgically as well. I was going to ask that. So you do follow up with them post-surgery? Yeah, and that's been a change yeah. in the service here and I think has um, uh, enhanced the service that we offer to our patients because prior to these referrals coming into the first point of contact clinic, uh, they would be seen by ENT for a pre-operative vocal cord check but not routinely seen for a post-operative check the patients who would come back to ENT were patients who were post-operatively having trouble swallowing food and drink or having issues with their voice whereas now we're trying to capture all patients post-operatively because you have that increased capacity yeah and it brings us more in line as a as a multidisciplinary service with the American Thyroid Association guidelines which recommend uh, visualization of the vocal folds post-surgically Excellent. And so you mentioned that you, so you sit down with the ENT after you perform that clinical consultation. Do you do that for every case? Do you have that? Yeah. yeah. So with the vocal cord checks, we, I would present uh, the images to the ENT after the appointment, um, except in the uh-huh. instance where um, there is an, an obvious abnormality, in which case ENT would come into the appointment Uh at the time of the vocal cord check. For our first point of contact clinic patients, who are the patients referred by their GP Uh for voice or swallowing issues, those patients get a joint Uh review by ENT and speech pathology at the time of their appointment. So they come in um, Uh and see me. I take quite an extensive case history from them and ask a lot of questions that I, in my previous roles, wouldn't have asked as part of a case history, but that ENT yeah. include. Yeah. So it's, it's uh-huh. quite an extensive case history. Yeah, can I say that, um, so I was fortunate enough to work shadow your role a few years about, back with a, another clinician. And I took away a lot from that. One of the things was that I was really underestimating the importance of the case history. Um, I understand that you have a lot working in that integrated clinic with an ENT, you have a lot more that you might be considering, but it really did influence my practice. I I now spend um, a lot more emphasis on that case history because it can be dysphonia and dysphagia can be so complex and there can, there's a potential for so many contributing factors. 
Yep, I, I completely agree. It's changed my practice as well when I stray into other areas of the hospital um, occasionally. I, I think I'm a, a better clinician now than I was previously and I'm sure Queensland Health uh, would expect that given how much money they invested in training me. <laughs> yes, it sounds quite extensive. It certainly does. And, and hence the, the quality and safety um, outcomes that you're achieving. Yeah. So we take this quite extensive case history. I complete, if indicated, a clinical bedside swallow. I complete an oromotor. I complete um, those previously mentioned multidimensional voice outcome measures and complete a flexible nasendoscopy and record that. Oh, I also administer cofenalcaine fort under a standing order. Um as prior to flexible nasendoscopy. And then while the patient uh-huh. is still in clinic, I go and find ENT and present the case to them. I'll say, oh, you know, hi, Dr. Whitfield. We have uh-huh. we have Nikki in clinic with us today. Nikki is uh-huh. a um, 21-year-old female. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Who <laughs> was referred to you by uh-huh. her GP two and a half weeks ago with a six-month history of dysphonia and then talk through the case history while Associate Professor Whitfield uh-huh. is reviewing the clinical images from the flexible nasoendoscopy. Uh-huh. And uh, he will then uh, either come in and, and see the patient um, or one of the other consultants will come uh-huh. in and, and see the patient and, uh, and let them know what uh, ENT are seeing from their perspective. And then I'll contribute uh, uh-huh. from a speech pathology perspective regarding the functioning of voice and, and functional swallow as well. And we'll jointly uh, come up uh-huh. with a management plan, which for the majority uh-huh. of patients is there's no nasty lumps and bumps um, that ENT are concerned uh-huh. about. So really good news. Um, a lot of patients are coming into this clinic just wanting to know that they don't have cancer as a basis for their changed uh-huh. voice. Um, uh-huh. So ENT are happy to discharge you. However, I can see that the way you're using your voice uh, is contributing to that changed sound in your voice and that's something that speech pathology can help you with. So what I'd like to do is refer you to one of our voice um, experts, one of our speech pathology colleagues, uh, to see you for a block of voice therapy. Mm. And amazing then for those speech pathologists to have such extensive information from yourself and from the ENT, I imagine. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's been beneficial to me receiving feedback from those speech pathologists about what they want in the report and what information they want recorded in the electronic uh, medical record and we as a as a team have really collaborated and since I started in this role uh, two and a bit years ago have really changed how we write up our patients so that they stream uh, really smoothly into voice therapy so that I can do some uh-huh. stimulability testing uh, during the flexible nasendoscopy to see how the patient responds to different voice techniques. Um, and uh-huh. I think that uh, is an advantage for the patient going from a, a first point uh-huh. of contact clinic where a speech pathologist has been able to trial some voice therapy uh, and do some biofeedback with the patient. So most of my patients, Uh I will show them their images if they want to have a look. I say to them, look, I've got the images here. Do you want to have a look with me? And I talk them through the anatomy Uh and then say, see this voice task we're doing here 
And you see how those muscles just above your vocal cords aren't covering your vocal cords anymore. They've really pushed out of the way and there's less strain. Um, that's the kind of thing that the, the speech pathologist will work with you on when you start voice therapy. Mm, what an advantage to have that, to be able to do that instrumental assessment right then and there and, and give that feedback to the patient. That's incredible. And we can also do some education uh, in our appointment because we have nice long appointments for those patients. They're 90-minute appointments, so they're quite comprehensive. Uh-huh. And I also do education on... Uh, vocal hygiene and if they're partaking in any phonotraumatic behaviours, if they're throat clearers, if they're coughing a lot, if they're yelling a lot, um, looking at intake, whether they smoke, uh, whether they have reflux. So we can address all of that in our first appointment, send the patient off with a plan to better manage their reflux and reduce those phonotraumatic behaviours and start a voice diary for some people so that by the time they get into voice therapy a few weeks later, hopefully their voice is is already starting to improve. Yeah, wow. Um, In terms of that extensive assessment that you perform and that planning and working with the ENT, I know for I'm a rural clinician and so my issue is always... I'm not as well resourced necessarily. And, you know, there isn't an ENT in the room next door. So there, there's those challenges. And I, I imagine for a number of speech pathologists listening, they're, they're in the same boat. Um, one thing I, I did ta- also take away and, and am inspired by your practice is to work hard for that ENT collaboration. Even though they're not in the room next door, after seeing what what your role entails. I'm far more willing, you know, I'm not afraid to pick up the phone and phone the ENT and say, look, the report has, you know, two words on it. <laughs> Can we chat about this patient? Um, and, and just build my understanding some more. And I feel that's really contributed to patient outcomes for me. Oh, absolutely. The, the joint nature of this clinic is uh, so beneficial to patients. ENTs are, um, are so skilled in so many different areas um, of dysphagia and dysphonia um, or dysphagic and dysphonic patients and speech pathology also contribute a lot for those patients. So having both of those um, uh, practitioners working with these patients is, um, is I think, a really holistic way to manage um, these patients. Mm. Um, in terms of I'm so interested in the success of the model, it's it's all the good things. You know, it's it's innovative, it's collaborative, it, it has that extended scope of, of practice for for yourself, for the speech pathologist. And you mentioned that it started in 2013, I think you said. So it, it clearly has some really good sustainability. So I'm really interested in what what have been the drivers for success in that. You mentioned ENT as integral, are there other members of the team who really make it work? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, From a multidisciplinary team perspective, we are also supported by our administration team. They make all of our bookings. They're the first point that the, um, of contact that the patients have with our service. We also work closely with the nursing staff up here in ENT and the um, the sterilization team. So we have we use the Tristel wipe system for cleaning our flexible nasendoscopes. 
And uh, so that means that there's a nurse uh, five doors down from me who's doing all the sterilization. So I liaise with her every day about how quickly I need scopes turned around and how much of a gap I have between patients. So our nursing team, our administration team, our ENTs. I'm also co-located with audiology and vestibular physio. And they're both, um, they both have uh, first point of contact clinics for those streams as well. So patients who wow. report um, any hearing troubles or any troubles um, that sound like the vestibular physiotherapist might be able to help with, I can write a referral while the patient is with me and send that to the audiologists and the vestib physios. And sometimes if they have capacity that day, they um, very generously allow me to finish up with the patient and complete the ENT speech pathology assessment and then walk the patient down to the vestibular physiotherapist, see her uh, and see audiology. So the patient ends up spending a few hours here, but they are so well sorted oh. by the time they leave our department. Yes. Yes, amazing to have all that achieved in the one visit. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes um, those services don't have capacity because they have a full day of clinic booked themselves, but um, it, uh, it, the, the referrals can certainly still be generated on the day and the patient doesn't need to go back to their GP um, for, for new referrals. And I think that actually touches on, I think, one of the the drivers of success for this particular clinic, which for me is location, location, location. So we're, we're, we're all next to each other um, up here in the integrated ENT department. Um, the hospital that I work at uh, is large enough to have the numbers of patients needed to make the training of an advanced clinician within an extended scope of practice role worthwhile because it is expensive to train an HP5 clinician for six or 12 months into a role. That's, that's a huge financial investment that a service has to make. So you need to make sure that you've got enough patients coming through. And we have that because our hospital um, is a, a biggish hospital and we are located close to a um, tertiary facility. So we're just down the road from the Princess Alexandra Hospital and most of the Cat 1 patients are serviced by that hospital. So our nearby hospital gets a lot of the Cat 2 and the Cat 3 referrals, meaning that a lot of the referrals that come to this hospital are potentially eligible to be triaged oh. by ENT into this first point of contact clinic. Oh. And uh -huh. I think an, another driver is um, for, for speech pathologists out there, you know, who are interested in first point of contact clinics is to look at the clinical oh. need and what medical subspecialties service the facility that you are at and can a first point of contact oh. clinic like this uh, value add to that medical subspecialty. No, that's fascinating. Yep. Yeah, and I think uh, that the the credentialing adds safety because there's an oversight committee that is, is looking at, um, at what's happening in this clinic. The co-location safety adds as well for our patients. Uh -huh. um, we uh, initially needed funding for training to, to start the service off, which was non-recurrent funding at that time. But after the success of the clinic, that funding became permanent oh. funding. Um, but oh. uh, services okay. may find that if they're managing a long wait list, that 
uh, if they start the service off and then manage the wait list successfully, they may need to reduce the FTE uh, attached to that, that position. Does that make sense? Mm, yeah, it does actually. I hadn't thought of that. It's a really good point. What year did you come in and work shadow? Oh, it was a while ago. It was maybe four years ago. So we might have dropped the FTE by then, but initially it was a 0.8 FTE position and now it's a 0.3 FTE position. So that 0.8 FTE position was able to really work through that that wait list really effectively. And now we've reduced the FTE to match the number of referrals that are coming in each month. So 0.3 FTE for us meets the needs of our cohort because we don't have a big wait list um, to draw patients from. We're just we're receiving patients basically as soon as they hit the wait list. Yeah, yeah. So you might need a a stronger financial push initially, but then pull back. But then pull back, yeah. And I think also once clinics are set up, uh, first point of contact clinics needs to continually adapt and evolve to ensure that they remain contemporary and meet the changing needs of the local demographic. And our example of that is where ENT identified these vocal cord check patients for us to include in the service, which uh, was... um, Uh, met with uh, support from our general surgeon that we work with and it's his patients who Uh I'm seeing each week and Uh those patients increased the number of patients who we're seeing in our clinic and they uh, are short uh, appointments as well meaning that we can see more Uh patients per week within the existing FTE. Mm. No that's that's brilliant isn't it it's it's innovative it's not rolling along with the status quo Um, as you say, it's continually open to change. Yeah, it is. And I think now that the service has, uh, you know, completed this longitudinal review that we published um, just just recently and, um, uh-huh. you know, that, that five-year uh, service review found that there had been no adverse effects, effects in, oh, sorry, no adverse outcomes uh-huh. within the uh-huh. clinic. It found that uh, we didn't miss anyone. So we looked at uh-huh. all the patients who'd come through the clinic across five years, went back into their medical uh-huh. charts to see if they had been re-referred or represented for the same issue, uh-huh. and uh, uh-huh. that hadn't happened. Um, and we also take uh, data from patients or ask patients to complete an anonymous survey following each appointment with the within the first point of contact uh-huh. clinic where they anonymously uh, rate the service on a number of different aspects. We have seven questions that we ask them uh, with uh, a score of one being uh, very unsatisfied and a score of four being very satisfied. Four out of the seven uh-huh. questions we've received 100% very satisfied from all of the patients who have uh-huh. been through the service. And the remaining three questions we have scored 99.3% very satisfied with the service. Wow, that, that's amazing because, you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong because I always thought there was someone who wasn't happy. So that is fantastic. That is absolutely amazing. And I think a lot of us can take something away from that as well in terms of 
always monitoring, always look, always looking at our outcomes and always monitoring how our service is performing. Yeah, and it's it's so pleasing to see those results come through. So when we have students who who come into the clinic as as part of their workload, um, they go out and get the paper copies of these these surveys for me, and I get them to data. Um, data entry work basically uh, for the service uh-huh. into some Excel spreadsheets that we have set up so I never see the raw yeah. data I only see it once it's been inputted and there's a couple uh, of free right. there's a couple of free text questions at the end of these surveys as well and patients are, are yeah. really really happy with the service that they receive in first point of contact clinic models or here at our hospital and that uh-huh is important information for us to have firstly if there was something that they were unhappy with to see if we needed to change anything to better meet the needs of our patients Uh, but secondly it gives us some data to respond to uh, people who are um, are not supportive of first point of contact clinics and there there are plenty of those people out there and that's fine but one of the criticisms of first point of contact clinics uh, is patients don't want to be seen by a speech pathologist. If they have trouble with their throat, they want to be seen by a doctor. They don't want to be seen by a speech uh-huh. pathologist. So that's one of the, the criticisms uh-huh. of first point of contact clinics. What the uh-huh. data that we have out of this clinic is that our patients are extremely happy to be seen uh-huh. in a first point of contact model. That's amazing. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. I think as speech pathologists... Um, we have so much to offer to any multidisciplinary team. And this model is just, it's amazing to see not only the value of the speech pathologist recognised, but the opportunity to expand in scope and contribute um, to the ENT profession as well. It's brilliant. Yeah, and we've had some really nice outcomes within this model. So firstly, you know, obviously we're able to manage that that initial wait list with those ultra-long wait patients. Uh, so all patients are now seen within a CAT1 or a CAT2 time frame. And as we you know, were talking about earlier, the major win in my mind are the patients who on paper sounded like a CAT2, CAT3 patient, but when you bring them into clinic, they're a CAT1 patient who need to urgently be seen by ENT. So those patients, and there have been quite a few of them over the years, they're the big winners in yep. my mind. Um, secondly, we've had no adverse events within the clinic since it started in 2013. Um, we've recently completed this longitudinal review of clinical safety of the clinic, uh, which was published in June, I think, in IJSLP, and it found that no patients seen in the clinic returned to ENT within the preceding 12 months for the same issue. So we can we can now confidently say it's a very safe service for patients to be seen in. Um, The early identification of management of unilateral vocal fold paralysis um, for our vocal cord check patients because we're now seeing them post-operatively within two to three weeks um, of their surgery. Patients who who sounded okay and previously probably wouldn't have received a flexible nasoendoscopy because they have a nice full kind of medialized cord that the other cord is is adducting against so perceptually their voice sounds okay Um, we can identify that nice and quickly and we know that the literature tells us that the earlier uh, paralysis or paresis is identified the you know the better chance they have um, with 
improved outcomes with voice therapy and or ENT uh-huh. management. Uh, and, um, yeah, and the probably the, the main other outcome for me from this model is just how um, pleased the patients are with the service. It's, it's really nice to read what, they, what the patients have to say about their experience within this model. Mm, that's, that's beautiful, Jen. And I look forward to reading the next research article that is published that's soon to come out. We're writing up um, from a, a CERTA grant that we got uh, 18 months ago. So we received uh, very generously $25,000 from CERTA to, to write up, uh, to establish and then write up our vocal cord check clinic. So that's our research focus at the moment. So hopefully we will have that written by the end of the year and someone out there will publish it, maybe. I'm sure, I'm sure they will. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jen. Thanks, Nikki. It's been so nice to speak with you. To everyone listening, thank you for tuning in today. Uh, We'll be back with another Speak Up podcast next Wednesday. Bye for now. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.